Welcome to episode 595 of the Modern Art Notes podcast, five to go to 600. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we take a look at one of the most thoughtful, interrogative American art exhibitions of the year. Curator J.R. Henneman joins me to discuss Near East to Far West, fictions of French and American colonialism, now at the Denver Art Museum. The exhibition explores how the style and substance of French Orientalism, art inspired by French colonial expansion into North Africa and the Islamic world, informed United States artists and their representations of lands the U.S. acquired as part of its imperial expansion. The exhibition is on view through May 29th. Its superb catalog was published by the Denver Art Museum. Amazon offers it for about $65. On the second segment, early photography in China at the Peabody Essex in Salem, Massachusetts. But first, J.R. Henneman, after the break. Starting on April 6th, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago presents Frictions, a suite of performances from Will Rawls, Shamel Pitts, and Barack Ade Soleil that focuses on the frictions that exist in a society shaped by race and the transformative power of productive resistance. Defying conventional notions of blackness, queerness, movement, dance, and performance, Frictions invites both audiences and performers to engage with the productive tensions that emerge through each work. Plan your visit to see one or all parts of Frictions at mcachicago.org backslash frictions. On view through July 16th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition, Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artists' books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show, and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. And we're back. J.R. Henneman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Pleasure to be here. What originally prompted your understanding that the European concept of the Orient, or maybe I guess more specifically the French concept of the Orient, could be applied to United States artists working in the American West? Well, this moment for me occurred very soon after my arrival at the Denver Art Museum, which was in 2016. I was getting familiar with the collection, focusing on Western American art specifically for the first time in my entire career. And when I was going through the collection, particularly when I hit some of the Southwest material from the early 20th century, 
I had some real questions about what was going on there. I'm originally from a farm and ranch in Montana. I grew up living the country life, and I do consider myself a Westerner. However, this material, much of the material from the collection, just had nothing to do with my own lived experience of the West, which isn't to say mine is the only experience out there. Of course, the West is a vast and very diverse place, but it did raise questions in my mind about what I was seeing, understanding that these are constructed objects meant to tell stories, meant to communicate something about the subject and the time. And it was at that moment I started to see much of this material really more as European Orientalism and the way it was staged and the way it was literally painted and the way it was lit and the poses and the very, the emphasis on objectness in much of the material struck me so much as, as Oriental, as a European production in a way that essentially raised the first question, which, which is a pretty straightforward question. What, if anything, does Orientalism have to do with art of the American West? That really kicked off my exploration of what became ultimately a five-year project. I truly began digging in around 2018. And and ultimately what I found out is that Orientalism, in fact, has a lot to do with representations of the American West, especially between the periods of the early 1800s into the early 1900s. So let's define some terms before we kind of tease out what's in the show and the histories the show addresses. So defining terms, let's start with the Orient, particularly the French concept of the Orient. Right. Well, the Orient is a completely made up term that from a European perspective over the course of centuries could refer to a variety of different locations that were typically to the south and to the east of Europe itself. So the Orient could mean southern Spain, the Orient could mean North Africa. The Orient could mean the greater Mediterranean basin. And indeed, for much of the 18th and 19th century, that really was a primary referent for what was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire controlled much of the geography around the Mediterranean basin. Of course, Orient could lean further east into what we would now call West Asia and even beyond. And of course, now the term Orient and Oriental are offensive and are not used in the present day. But for the period under discussion for this project, the Orient, from a French perspective, refers very much to North Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and Egypt primarily, as well as the greater Mediterranean basin because of the presence of the Ottoman Empire during that time. There's a, there's a specific reason for this French focus. It is because after Napoleon's attempted colonization of Egypt in the late 1700s, France did go on to successfully colonize Algeria starting in the 1830s up until Algerian independence in 1962. So for the purposes of this project, the Orient points towards North Africa and the greater Mediterranean basin from a French perspective. So there's an obvious connection there to French imperialism and to the ways in which artists can further projects of othering. For the purposes of this project, how would you define the American West? It is a, over time, a changing and moving boundary. Why is it? <laughs> so it's, and even, even today, the American West has 
a very kind of there are fuzzy edges around where the American West begins and ends, depending on how you're defining it as a literal place or geography or as more of a myth or an idea or a legend. But for the purposes of this project, which does take, which does reinforce, in fact, an East Coast looking perspective towards the American West, the West is a really any place that lands around the Mississippi, Missouri rivers and then westward as the country itself becomes further colonized up to the West Coast. So the definition of the American West for this purpose, for this project, truly is that kind of traditional notion of the Mississippi to the Pacific, Canadian border to the southern border. Although, correct me if I'm wrong, when I look at what's in the show, the artworks in the show, California and Oregon and Washington State, the Pacific West is pretty much absent. You know what's funny? Yes, you are correct. And you know what's interesting to me about that observation is at the Petrie Institute of Western American Art, we define the West very broadly in the ways I just described. However, when we did visitor focus groups about four years ago, we gave visitors a map of the contiguous 48 states without without any state names on them. And we asked them to circle where the West was. <laughs> and very consistently, Tyler, people left off Oregon, Washington, California, because for, for various reasons, it's too wet, the ocean isn't the West, the climate isn't right. There were, there were a number of different justifications. Texas was often also left out, which was interesting. So at the Petrie Institute, we're actually working to better embrace in representation in our collection, those geographies. But it is interesting to note that in the popular perception of the American West, it tends to come down to two primary geographies, mountains and desert. And that is reinforced in the content from this exhibition. I, I, I should note that you mentioned earlier ago that this was the American East looking at the American West. And I think in the period this show covers... San Francisco, which at that point really is the cultural capital of the far West, in the period this show covers, San Francisco looks at the Intermountain West a lot differently than the East Coast looks at the Intermountain West. Okay, so Orient and West defined for the purposes of this project. What are some of the ways in which Frenchness permeated post-Civil War U.S. culture? Because I think this show is full of that. <laughs> it is full of that. And I'll, I'll just, a, a, a quick anecdote, when I was putting together the checklist for this show, one of my first questions was, how much material can I actually source from U.S. collections? You mean French material? French material. Well, well all material, American and French. But it was the French material. I, I thought, oh, surely I'll have to get most of that from France. But it turns out I was completely incorrect because there is so much French material in U.S. collections spanning the country. And there are very good historical reasons for this. During the second half of the 19th century, certainly post-Civil War, French art became the, it, it was the, the aspiration, right? If you, were, if you were culturally accomplished, if you had reached a certain pinnacle of, of wealth and culture, then you looked towards France as an example. And we see this emphasized, or probably created and reinforced in art markets for French material at the same time through major galleries such as Nodler, who sold works by Jean-Léon Jerome, and collectors such as William T. Walters, whose collection now at the Walters Museum is a really good snapshot of the kind of 
overlap between French and American art for some major patrons at this time. French material was just everywhere, certainly in the fine art market, but also in popular culture, in print media, in photography. France was held up at this time as as the again the, the symbol or the aspiration of true high fine cultural expression and that is certainly reinforced in this project to your point about the profusion of 19th century especially academic french material in us museums i mean perhaps the greatest bougereau in the united states is in a museum in stockton california you know it's, in, indeed it's, it's everywhere it is collected by <laughs> nouveau riche you know, industrialists who made their money through the processes frequently of colonial expansion and the industries needed to support it. So there were so many ways in which my initial question about what does Orientalism have to do with Western American art, the way it was reinforced in just daily life in the 19th century for some of these collectors and patrons, you've got these very clear on-the-ground examples of overlap and interest up to some much more intellectual or philosophical connections between how both France and the U.S. are looking at or considering or envisioning, picturing their own colonial empires. Given all this, a United States artist would not have had to have gone to France to know orientalizing French art. So what are some of the ways artists in the U.S. would have had knowledge of the sort of material that we'll talk about in a minute that's in your show? So many different different venues. One example is works on paper. Print material was more accessible to more households, specifically fine art paintings being reproduced as prints. And Jean-Léon Jérôme, the one of the premier French Orientalists, is a great example of this. He had a close business and personal relationship with Goupil-Ici, which was a gallery in Paris that ended up producing enormous amounts of printed, they, of paintings in print version, really often quite fine print versions that they would sell around the globe. They had warehouses in Europe, United States, South Africa, and Australia. So even if you'd never saw a real painting by Jérôme, there's a good chance you saw a reproduction of his work, either as a print or reproduced in popular media magazines, for example, art magazines. There were also of course, as photography became more present in daily life towards the end of the 19th century, and certainly representations of quote-unquote types of peoples from around the world became part of the pseudoscience of the day, easily accessible through multiple media. And one major disseminator of orientalizing imagery that we consider in the exhibition are World's Fairs, in which frequently living representatives of global indigenous cultures were living on site and performing their culture for visitors. And so we take a, an entire section to look at the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, one of many we could have chosen, but there's just such great material on that event. And we look at the ways in which peoples are presented and the kind of surprising next chapter to that story are Charles Russell and Frederick Remington, both of whom are usually pigeonholed as these quote-unquote quintessential Western artists, both of whom went to the 1893 Columbian Exposition, as well as the 1904 St. Louis, uh, Louisiana Purchase Exposition, and were deeply influenced by the 
peoples, especially the North African representatives they saw on display there. So it would have been very difficult to have not interacted with orientalizing imagery, and even more specifically, French orientalist imagery during the second half of the 19th century and early part of the 20th. Well, let's take some of what we've been talking about and do some kind of comparing of French art and U.S. art. One of the, I don't know what the word to use is here. I don't think they're coincidental, but I don't think they're directly influential in a linear way either. But one of the connections, maybe that's a good word. Uh, One of the connections you make in the catalog for the show is comparing the French artist address of Algiers and the United States artist address of the Intermountain West. What do Algiers and the Intermountain West have in common and kind of how do artists carry that forth? Well, the landscape of the the desert specifically is powerfully present in the European and American popular imagination during the 19th century and early 20th, even though most Americans and Euro-Americans would never have been to a true desert the desert had this this imaginative presence because of its reference in popular literature such as the Arabian Nights and also because of the Christian Bible. And what we see in the artistic material from the mid to later 19th century French and American is a real question about what is the desert and how in the world am I supposed to paint it? This is an unknown, completely foreign environment. When you, If you think about the quality of light, the lack of humidity in the air, the ways in which the light so powerfully blows out a lot of detail, leaving just the shadows kind of stand in as these pools of color. It, in some ways, it inverted artists' expectations of, or maybe not inverted, but flipped on its head artists' expectations of how to represent any landscape. So we see artists really grappling with how to depict these spaces for audiences who had never seen a real one, truly had had never been to the desert. And yet what we see at this time is that American, Euro-American explorers in particular, as they move westward, they are challenged to describe what they are seeing and experiencing, particularly when it comes to this vast landscape. And and as you know, for many years, much of what we would now consider the Great Plains and the Southwest were all lumped together as the Great American Desert, because that landscape appeared to be not only dry and perhaps unable to be cultivated, but also it seemed to be empty, which of course it was not. But that was the perception, and that reinforced popular notions of what the desert, what a desert space was. The most famous desert now and, and at that time certainly is was the Sahara. And there were already references to and some knowledge of the Sahara in Europe and Euro-America. And so the Sahara became this hook upon which one could hang his hat if you were someone like Zebulon Pike moving westward trying to describe this landscape and invoked the American Sahara to try to describe the vastness and the dryness of of the landscape you were encountering. Now, true deserts in both the American West and North Africa are actually um, much smaller, but they they do exist. 
And there are certainly resonances between those landscapes, which is something that Richard Frank Laviglia and his essay in the catalog teases out. There are visual and geographical similarities between these regions. But in the popular imagination during most of the 19th and early 20th century, the idea of the desert was much larger and much less nuanced than it would become over time and was utilized as this exhibition argues, to reinforce certain orientalizing tropes about, in this case, the American West, which was seen as this exotic, again, quote, air quotes, exotic space, uh, a new and challenging landscape. And also this idea of the desert, because of its symbolic tie to the Christian Bible, did seem to present quote-unquote, evidence that Euro-Americans were indeed God's chosen people meant to move ever westward into that holy land of the great American West. There are a couple of sections in the show in which you pair artists, one from North America, one from France, and I think those are both really interesting. Two of the artists, the exhibition and indeed the catalog, which is absolutely terrific, pairs are Delacroix and Alfred Jacob Miller. Actually, I think of, of, of the group of artists in the show, I think Miller might have been the only one, at least the only earliest one, to have been to and, and, and to have studied in France. What does Miller take or learn from Delacroix, and what does he, and how does he carry it into the West? This is the, the earliest artist-to-artist comparison we set up, and it's not just that Miller does learn some things from Delacroix, and I promise I'll answer your question. But it's also that their trajectories as artists are also similar. The story is that Miller is studying abroad in Italy and France for uh, during 1832. While he's in Paris, he does study the work of Eugène Delacroix, who is a, already upheld as a as a premier Romantic artist with a capital R, and. However, the same year, 1832, while Miller is in Paris, Delacroix is not. He is on his one and only journey to North Africa, which he spends, I believe it's about three months in North Africa, and then returns to his Parisian studio. And for the rest of his career, Delacroix produces images, productions of the Orient, that is North Africa, inspired by that one and only trip there. Similarly, Miller, once he returns to the U.S. in 1837, he's commissioned by the Scottish nobleman William Drummond Stewart to accompany Stewart to what is now Wyoming on one of the last great fur trappers rendezvous. And Miller himself spends months in in this location in what is now called the West and then similarly returns to his Baltimore studio and for the remainder of his career capitalizes upon his one and only journey into this quote-unquote exotic place and produces these, (laughs) makes these productions, representations of his American West or American Wests. So it's interesting that both of these artists become seen or held up as artist explorers, even though they each only took one trip, and yet that trip so profoundly influenced the rest of their careers and indeed their reputations in terms of what kind of material they were I want to say the word authorized, but, but that they seemingly had the authority to represent. Now, I do think that Miller learned both from Delacroix and Delacroix's contemporaries working in a romantic style 
how to present quote-unquote exotic places as beautiful, alluring, violent, aggressive, essentially the sublime, the great sublime, dangerous and beautiful at the same time. Close comparisons between specific artworks, which we do set up in the exhibition, demonstrate that Miller's learning use of important uses of color. There's that white horse that shows up in almost all of these paintings, and then something is red. There's usually a scarf or a breechcloth or something that is bright red. I mean, that is a very Delacroixian (laughs) technique to to attract your eye, to reinforce the dynamism through color, shall we say. And that's just one example. The brush strokes, the composition, the fluidity, the elegant fluidity of both of their compositions rendered in what I would describe as romantic tones in terms of the hues and the palettes. I do think that Miller learned these techniques from Delacroix, but also from Delacroix's contemporaries, since we know Miller was studying so broadly. And this lesson within the exhibition is not meant to say that these are one-for-ones. It's a comparative study. So where are the similarities? Where are the differences? Where are the, the resonances between this material? I think historians of French art would rate Delacroix as a greater painter relative to French art than Americanists would rate Miller relative to American painting. In the context of what you're doing in this show and the arguments you're making, do those quality, air quote, quality judgments matter? No, not as much. I I would agree with your assessment. In fact, we know that for quite a long time, Miller was, like like many Western American artists, just completely overlooked in the American art canon. So I, I agree with your assessment about the perceived value or reputation of both of these artists. The lesson is more so about the long-term diffusion and repetition of certain tropes, certain artistic styles, certain motifs, certain stereotypes over time. And that's where I think Miller's work becomes a really important bridge between French material and American material, because so many of these Oriental and Romantic tropes, such as the noble savage, very clearly show up both in Delacroix's and in Miller's work. And Miller's, Miller's the earliest artistic example uh, from the American perspective in this show. And so he really sets the stage for thinking about this longer term life or dissemination of these tropes and stereotypes. I think one of the really important things about the show is that it is a clear argument that you, as an artist, you don't have to be Vermeer to have impact and influence on your nation's polity and culture. And I think you'd probably just said the same thing in fewer words than I just did. (laughs) I, I agree. I think this exhibition is very much about extraordinary examples of art by individual artists with, with individual reasons for creating and individual patrons and markets, et cetera. But it is also more broadly. And I think more importantly about the influence and impacts of colonial representation as as disseminated in this case between France and the United States, both during the time of their creation and certainly up into the present. Another point of nationalistic comparison, if that's a phrase, that the show makes that I had never thought about and have recently been unable to stop thinking about 
is studio fictions, which I think is a particularly interesting area to consider. I, I think when, when European Americans think of art of the American West, we think of that blinding sunlight and, and, and outdoor stuff. But in the show, you look at studio fictions, and I, and I think that some of the most interesting and thought-provoking similarities or relationships or maybe more than coincidences that the show underlines are between George DeForest Brush and Jerome. What are they doing in, the, in their studios, and what, what do those works have in common? The majority of the material in this exhibition is biased towards academic practice, which really does mean studio <laughs> fiction, studio productions. And as a disclaimer, the show is not trying to be comprehensive in its overview of French Orientalism and Western American art. As any exhibition does, it's telling a story through carefully selected material, much of which has roots in academic practice. And so I think it's most clearly articulated, and thank you for this excellent question about it, in the work of Jean-Léon Jérôme and George DeForest Brush. What's so powerful about this comparison is that while, while Brush was one of, I think, hundreds of American students that Jérôme had over decades, he so closely emulated Jérôme's style. So not only is he learning from this great master about using the human body as a vehicle for expression of aesthetic beauty and other universal truths. He is learning from Jerome how to carefully compose and pose his paintings. He is also working in this carefully refined and finished painting style that erases any trace of the brush stroke. And so and after studying with Jerome for a good number of years, he goes back to the United States and for about a decade produces what is known as his Indian paintings. And this is all very clearly acknowledged in the scholarship on brush. Uh, but when you put them into conversation, I think it becomes so clear just how much certain artists are essentially just changing the cultural affiliations of the objects on display in their paintings. They're reiterating the primary tenets of academic art production and just changing the stage props essentially yeah and, and if i could just if i could just maybe raise two specific paintings that might help jerome's dance of the alme from 1863 and brushes the picture writer's story which do exactly what you're describing and might might help a bit here yeah both of these both of these paintings are just so beautifully executed they look, quote unquote, real because of the way they are painted. And yes, they are observed carefully from real bodies and real objects in the studio space. But they are constructed fictions. They are storytelling. They are meant to transport you. So within the exhibition, one of the big questions we hope visitors will will ask of themselves is where is the line between fact and fiction? Is it even possible to identify that line? How can we, we see something that looks real, but then how can we step back and understand it's completely constructed, it's produced? And this material, because of the way it's painted, because of its convincing depth and space and the sensuality of the fabrics and of the bodies on display, they seem so utterly real. And yet, Seeing them together, I think, does help underscore that main point. They are staged 
productions that are meant to transport you imaginatively. Those two pictures have more or less the same, not the exact same dimensions, but, but you know, they're, they're rectangles of the same proportion. That's the word I'm looking for. They have kind of the same pictorial space, foreground to rear, same lighting. We'll have images of them on manpodcast.com. They are pretty stunning. A little bit earlier, you mentioned Antoine Louis Barry, who was the probably the greatest French artist of four-legged critters. <laughs> I think the show comes either argues or comes close to arguing that there's a real analogy between Barry's and, and other French artist scenes of, say, tigers and American or European-American artists' interest in buffaloes. How are those addresses, I guess, both conceptually and materially similar? Yeah, it, it's actually not just Americans exclusively interested in bison and vice versa. Actually, there's a great work on paper from the Met by Barry of American bison that were kept at the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. And there's a beautiful stalking panther by Alexander Femister Proctor, the American artist. Uh, so so it, it actually goes both ways. But to your question, Big Cats and Bison, as we call the exhibition section, <laughs> I love it. is very, yeah, I think it's going to be a fan favorite too. Just oh, some of these animals, these critters, as you say, are so beautiful. But this is actually a fairly heavy exhibition section, as playful as it may seem on the surface, because it's very much about the symbolism of these quote unquote, exotic animals transported from their homelands to, in in this case, the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, the biggest zoo in the heart of France's metropole. And in the work of Barry, it includes works on paper, an oil, and a sculpture. So you really get a sense of his of entire oeuvre and just how talented he was with representing the animal form. But his works on paper in particular are really quite moving because he is painting in the zoo. And at this time, these big cats were kept in very small cages indoors. There are some photographs or representations that exist, and they're, they're just completely opposite to how we, what we expect of zoos today. You could reach out and put your hand through this tiger's cage. I mean, it's a... Kind of extraordinary. So imagine someone like Bachi sitting and studying these animals in such caged confinement. He does not paint them behind bars. He metaphorically liberates them into totally imagined landscapes. In some ways, he returns them to a wild, uh, the wild space from which they came. But at other times, we see artists using, using wild big cats, such as lions and tigers, in the work of Delacroix in lion hunt scenes. And they become these have noble foes, highly aggressive, highly violent, and they, they reinforce certain biases of the quote-unquote Orient as a fantastical, savage place in need of taming. So there's there are a range of responses to the exotic animals being studied in, the con in confinement. And I do think that when you dig deeper into this subject, you start to understand the artists themselves are sometimes torn about the realities of colonial expansion, but maybe more closer to home of modernity, of transporting something so wild and so seemingly noble and certainly beautiful to the heart of the urban metropole, which, let's be frank, is noisy, is dirty, is polluted, 
I think there's a real ambivalence towards these animals that is not necessarily resolved in the artworks, but makes for some really wonderful tension, productive tension, and I think room for conversation. When it comes to the bison, that's where this gets really heavy because the symbolism of the bison undergoes great transition over the course of the colonizing the American West. You are first seen as this aggressive obstacle to settlement. The bison is soon understood as a primary support for many indigenous communities and is therefore, for, for multiple reasons, almost completely decimated by the 1880s. And it is around that point in time when we start to see the bison upheld as a national symbol in this very nostalgic way. You mean a national symbol by the United States, not by Native Yes, nations. exactly. Yeah, yes, of, of the U.S., the same nation that has caused its near demise. So in the exhibition, we have a variety of representations of bison. Uh, we've got a great Charles Russell uh, buffalo hunt, that very, very dramatic, dynamic subject. We have a William Jacob Hayes that has a much moodier and I think more reflective and romantic perspective on the disappearing bison. And then we, what is not in the catalog, but what we reproduce in full on a 20-foot wall is a photograph of a four-story tall mound of bison skulls near Detroit, Michigan, with a man standing on top and a man standing in front. And this this visual intervention, more than any text I or anyone could ever write, does powerful work in articulating one small drop of the devastation of the bison herds uh, at this time. And layered with that wall graphic is a five-minute video produced by the Fort Peck Reservation speaking from an indigenous perspective about the trauma of the near loss of this family member and additionally of their contemporary efforts to rehabilitate herds. I think one of the things that European American painting painters are doing in the 19th century is using buffalo, the buffalo, as a metaphor. The strategy, of course, derived from Emerson in the 1830s, so there's no reason that the French artists necessarily would be doing the same. And I think American, European American painters are using buffalo as an, a, a metaphor or an allegory or a stand-in for what in 19th century language would have been called the extirpation of Native Americans and for buffalo, for bison to stand in for reference to the vanishing Indian myth, to suggest that Native people were responsible for their own obsolescence and disappearance. One, does the show interrogate that part of how American artists paint bison? And secondly, is there anything like that in French art? Or is that a step beyond? The show does not specifically make that connection, though certainly the theme is there. We do link the symbolism of the bison to the U.S. government's efforts to eradicate them in order to control indigenous populations so that they are linked in that way from Eastern or a Euro-American perspective. It's certainly not intentionally did I build into the show anywhere or, or comment upon the idea that indigenous peoples were themselves responsible for their own demise. Uh, that is not a theme that is that surfaces in this exhibition to my knowledge. However, there is certainly in much of the material this repetition of 
the noble savage trope and the paradox of noble and savage it's itself immediately eliminates indigenous peoples from any kind of presence in the active modern within modernity i think that that theme is much more present in the material on display yeah i didn't mean to suggest that the museum was suggesting Native people were responsible for their own, air quotes, demise. But I, I think that is a thread that runs through a lot of American painting of Buffalo in the West, that the artists themselves are using Buffalo to make that suggestion. I think there's, I think it's very clear from the material that, that bison and indigenous people are being put on a parallel path into a, a path into non-existence, essentially, uh, which is a connection George Catlin makes in his newspaper columns of what, the late 1820s or very early 1830s. Colonizing narrative, which is that unless you, which is that if you're not a part of modernity, you're in the way of expansion. You're in the way of, essentially both bison and indigenous peoples are up, are held, are perceived as obstacles. And in that way, they are certainly on a parallel track or seen symbolically, sometimes interpreted symbolically in a very similar way. That William Jacob Hayes from 1862 that I think is in your collection, um, I think has that narrative within it. We have a group of maybe 20 buffalo standing still between the viewer and the setting sun, the setting sun of the Anglo-Saxonist civilization narrative by which you know, the, the, the narrative used to justify the European-American advanced westward and extension of Anglo-Saxonism and its relationship to Christianity and civilization and republicanism. And the buffalo are between us and the setting sun. And within that composition is a suggestion of what's going to happen. Yes, they are certainly vanishing into some kind of mist. We have been talking about European-American presentations of native people and native land, about European-American artists imposing ideologies and their interests and their learning and their art historical background on Native people and their land. How in the presentation of the exhibition do you point to or emphasize the or pro problematize those ideologies? Well, we knew from the inception of this project that without community voices and perspectives, we, we just wouldn't be able to do a sensitive topic like this correctly. And so one way that you'll see different perspectives that raise questions or push back against uh, certain ideas or biases, uh, these, these are represented through community voice labels. And they represent a range of community members, both and as well as a number of scholars, because it's my conviction is that as a white curator, it's not my space. It is not my job to speak on behalf of. I, and the Denver Art Museum is an institution that very much values listening to community and making space for community voices when and where possible, understanding that it's a crucial part of not only of engaging the people to whom we are responsible, but also creating spaces for conversation and reflection and learning. So over the course of this project, we spent years working with external consultants community members, and indeed internal committees and councils to make sure that the material, which is sensitive and problematic, could be interpreted from diverse perspectives. 
could be held accountable where need be. And I, I can speak I can speak to the details of those processes if you're interested, but but ultimately within the exhibition, they manifest as people speaking via text, people speaking via audio. And we also have a few different interventions, well, two, two different interventions by contemporary interdisciplinary artists. Are there places in the exhibition in which cultural material made by Native people, whatever form that cultural material might take, made in the same years as the artworks made by European Americans are presented together? Because one thing that, that doing that can do is providing a different and specific centering. You know, instead of allowing the European American artists to center Native people in a certain way, it allows for Native people to self-center their own stories within their own work and perhaps, in so doing, belie the ideologies the European American artists are presenting in their work. Yeah, there, yes, great question. There are two spaces specifically where we have paired a European or Euro-American productions with global indigenous productions. And these these are both instances of decorative arts, actually. The, there are two major decorative arts moments in the exhibit. Uh, and they both feature a work by Tiffany & Co. that are then flanked by, in the first example, two uh, 14th century Egyptian mamluk tray and then a Tunisian it's, it's a Tunisian bowl, a ceramic bowl produced for the tourist market in the 20th century. And the point is to underscore, in this case, the role of Islamic arts in, well, the, the presence of Islamic arts in the late 19th century and early 20th century French and American market, but also to acknowledge the, the ways in which this material was harnessed by American artists, in this case, Edward Seymour, Tiffany and Company, to further American decorative arts. And the the way we set it up is not to answer questions, but rather to raise one, which is, is there a line between inspiration and appropriation when we think about the process of collecting? So that the Mamluk tray is from Edward Seymour's personal collection, which was then given to the Met. So there's a very clear relationship between what he's looking at and what he's producing. How how are we meant to think about this repurposing of Islamic arts? And we ask similar questions then later on in a section in the section that's about the 1893 Columbian Exposition called the Wild East, and we present a silver vessel by Paulding Farnham, Edward Seymour's successor at Tiffany and Co that clearly references indigenous design and motifs. And we've paired it with two objects from the Denver Art Museum's indigenous arts collections, a jar, an Akama jar, and a Zuni bowl. And we, we asked the same questions about inspiration and appropriation, but also to what degree does referencing indigenous artists pay, potentially pay them homage at the same time that it erases the voices and perspectives of those originators. And again, we don't answer questions, we just raise them for people to consider. And our hope is that both the selection of objects, the way they're presented and the, the interpretation accompanying them helps bring at least an awareness of indigenous agency that may not be present uh, or that, that people may not have considered up until that point. 
I thought those were two of the most interesting juxtapositions in the entire catalog, in part because they resisted what has become dominant and I think stultifying museum institutional practice. Recent museum practice has been to bring in a contemporary artist to address 1880. And I thought that in both of the examples you just noted by having 1880 next to 1880 or 1895 next to 1895, you know, whatever the case may be, that made an historical argument with maximum clarity. And I hope it is noticed across the field. J.R. Henneman, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time today. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. Welcome back. Next up, Stephanie Tung, who joins me to discuss power and perspective, early photography in China at the Peabody Essex. She curated the show along with Karina H. Corrigan. The exhibition reveals how photographers helped determine how the world viewed 19th century China. The show features 130 photographs and paintings, decorative arts, and prints, too. It's on view through April 2nd. The excellent exhibition catalog, and oh, by the way, both of this week's exhibition catalogs are absolute winners, was published by the museum. Amazon offers it for about $60. Stephanie Tung, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 
This is totally unfair because it's an unanswerable question, but who took the first photographs in China, comma, and when? <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, what a way to start. Um, I think um, I will answer about what we know um, and, and I think what actually survives. Um, but then I will also um, add that there are things that we don't know and things that we don't know have not survived. The first photograph of China that survives was made by Jules Etier. And Jules Etier is uh, a member of the French diplomatic mission who was there to negotiate the Treaty of Wampoa. Um, the Treaty of Wampoa was one of the unequal treaties that was ending the first opium war. Um, and so he was there on the mission to understand the commercial potential of China. Uh, and at the same time, he brought this newfangled technology, uh, a daguerreotype camera, with him to on his trip. And and so he made a set of photographs of Macau, of Hong Kong, and of Guangzhou that documented uh, the, the, the treaty signing and the people that he met. So that's what we know. Those photographs still exist. Uh, they are in um, various places in private collections and in also in France. But we also have a lot of other uh, supporting material, things like newspaper ads and personal accounts and diary notes of other people who've had who had said that they had brought cameras daguerreotypes to China prior to ETA but unfortunately none of those survive at least not that we know of so we're talking here about 1844ish um, with with ETA ETA's presence in these pictures raise um, kind of the first big question that I think anybody considering early photography in, in China has to think about, and that is, how might we understand the relationship between photographs made in China and the United States and Europe? That's a good question. I think that, I think the with photographs made in China, I think we have to understand that photography and colonialism are intertwined. And I think that's something that is not just in China, but also in so many different ways um, with Europe and the United States and any of the places that were was being touched by colonialism. And so I think that is a very, very basic thing. Um, it's embedded in the language of photography, aim, shoot, capture. It's, that's also the language of weapons. Um, this is kind of um, something that during this early period, I think is important to think about. And so I think with this publication and with the show, we wanted to acknowledge that and start with that sort of acknowledgement that these histories are intertwined. I think that the first cameras that arrived in China were brought there along with um, weapons on steamships. And it was there to document, I think, the, the, the potential that was coming out, uh, the colonial potential of of China after the first and second opium wars. I think that is one of the sort of entry points, but I think one of the things we wanted to emphasize is that it's not the whole story. I mean, I mean you know, this is pretty early in photography. Photography is still trying to figure out its uses. Um, I, I think in a lot of the pictures, early pictures in the show. Kind of speaking of which, who is Louis Legrand and what pictures does he make that are represented in your project? And because this is um, a United States produced show, I'm going to simply um, note that Louis Legrand and Louis Legrand Noble are, are different people. Louis Legrand Noble, an American 
author and kind of an amanuensis for uh, Thomas Cole. Louis Legrand is a French photographer, and he was he was the earliest photographer to make commercial um, photographs of Shanghai in 1858. Um, his specialty was a stereograph. And so it's quite interesting because at that time, stereographs were also new technology. It was kind of this part of this drive to visualize and see the world. And I think he made a set of stereographs of Shanghai that were really quite different than some of the other stereographs of, say, Guangzhou that uh, Pierre Rossier had made. Uh, Legrand's stereographs are very, they focus a lot on the rural, the picturesque. They have very hard to decipher compositions. They are, are, I think, amongst the earliest to sort of portray Shanghai as this place that I think is very empty and open. And so I think that was part of his project of um, making these commercial stereographs. I don't think his commercial stereographs did very well. There's only a couple of sets of those that are in the world. Um, and we have a set here as well. And I think I really think about him in juxtaposition to Pierre Rossier, who was a, a Shanghai, a, a Guangzhou photographer, a French photographer who was doing work in Guangzhou. Um, and his works were much more successful in some ways. They're much more about the people, the daily life. Um, instead of the landscapes and the rural picturesque. And so I think this was a, an area in which they were still experimenting thing in terms of what the market wanted in terms of uh, early photography in China. Speaking of the market, for whom was Legrand making these pictures? Were they, were they for a French market? Were they for a Chinese market? I think it was for a French market. One of the things I think we see across this project is kind of a pictorial maturation of how photography exists in China. Who was Felice Beato and what makes him important, pivotal, good? If we could just backtrack just a little bit in terms of the other question that you were making about um, colonial, like, well, the sort of way in which we should think about um, photography in U.S. and Europe. I think that one of the things that we are doing in the show is try to think about how making a photograph is a social process and that thinking about the making of the photograph rather than just the taking. And I think that acknowledging that sort of colonial, the intertwined histories of colonialism and photography is one of the ways in which that we can really understand or unpack that sort of the social. Um, in the exhibition, we really focus, we have, you know, two strategies going in focus, so zooming in. Um, and so we lead a lot of the viewers through this exercise of close looking. And then we do a lot of zooming out as well. So what are the historical, social and political contexts that are happening beyond the frame that have an impact on this photograph um, that we're looking at? And so I think Felice Beato is a really prime example of this relationship. Felice Beato is an Italian British photographer. He is embedded into the British army during the Second Opium War. And I should say that Felice Beato himself was somebody who was uh, continually following the British troops in terms of where they were going throughout their uh, expeditions. And so he is trained in Crimea. He is, um, he is working in India um, in term, in, with the, the sort of uh, the uprisings there. He, he made a set of photographs there. China was his next stop. 
And then after China, he goes on to Japan and Korea and Burma. And so he's going to all these places that have been touched by British colonialism. And it's, I think he is, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's something that he is going to document, I think, a lot of these military campaigns, definitely from the perspective of somebody who is uh, living and working with a lot of the soldiers that are on these campaigns as well. And so Felice Beato, his photographs are amazing. They are also very complicated because I think of that, that, that sort of push-pull. He is definitely somebody who's telling a very specific story of British military power and dominance in each of the places that he's going to. Uh, the things that we don't actually see as much of in the sort of when we look at his photographs are all the things that went into making them as well. He had uh, hired Chinese laborers. He had lots and lots of equipment. He had the time and the permission of the military commanders. And so that was something in which enabled his entire production process to create these beautiful photographs that are at the same time um documentation, but also filled with ideologies, and then at the same time, really beautiful. And so it's a, it's a complicated uh, thing that he makes. Beato makes a bunch of panoramas, including um, a, an enormous one in your collection. And panoramas are a particular, you know, they are the largest claiming of space that the medium can produce, both in this period and later. I mean, you know, um, I photograph it, therefore I control the representation of an entire place. I think there is uh, one photograph in our collection, which is him. So Beato is photographing and, and tracing the journey of the British troops as they arrive in Hong Kong, their master ships and fleet, um, and they make their journey up to Beijing to convince the imperial authorities or convince to their demands. Um, and so it's a military campaign from Hong Kong to Beijing. And it, what he's doing in all of these places is finding places to make these panoramas. In Hong Kong, he goes up to the top of Victoria Peak, looks down on this bay. And in this bay, you'll see all of these ships of these, the British fleet in the bay. Hong Kong itself is also a new colony. And the way that he's photographed it is just, it's just so expansive that he's, um, you really can see the land all unfurled uh, below him and then this this fleet that's to Beijing. In Beijing he has a huge panorama of the entrance to the Forbidden City and so he, the British army is successful in the, taking um, capturing Beijing and they are among the first to be actually able to freely walk in the capital and so he takes his camera um, and I think this is like one of the is one of the, the earliest ones to be able to freely roam and photograph and goes up on the wall of to, to peer into the Forbidden City. And so there's this panorama where he's looking in um, from the wall. He's the, the British soldiers were not allowed to actually go into the Forbidden City, but he can sort of use his camera to peer in. And that sort of panorama is just so sweeping. It's the it, it sort of, again, thinks about, I think, the dominance of the, the photographic apparatus. I think... The thing with Beato, though, is that there are all these little clues to things that he also inadvertently captures in his photographs, which is, I think, really interesting um, and which sort of draws me into the work. In his Beijing photographs, there are a couple where there are these blurs of people. And when we look closely at them, we realize that they are people who are 
uh, inhabitants of Beijing who are looking back at the camera on the wall. And so we don't have any sort of newspaper accounts or like oral histories of how ordinary Beijing residents were experiencing this event. But we threw Beato's um, photographs, the inadvertent inclusion of these photographs, of these people in these photographs, we see that they were looking back, they were registering a presence. And so there's this, I think, push-pull in terms of these photographs, especially of something like Beato's colonial photographs, that they were made with a certain point of view, but there's always more that's in them that can be found. It's not only uh, Europeans that are going to China to make photographs that have survived into the present. It's Americans, too. Who, uh, who is maybe the first American to uh, go to China to make pictures? And, and, and are his pictures doing different things than the Europeans' pictures are? This is part of the question of what we don't know and we don't know. I, there were some diary notes about a photographer an American photographer who went to China as part of some treaties. And I don't remember exactly the name, but we don't have any photographs of that um, amateur photographer's work surviving. And this is a different question, I think, in terms of like, there were some people who were amateur photographers who were, who were bringing the camera with them at, because of the business relationship with China. It was much more about at this time, U.S. and Europe were trading silk, tea, porcelain, um, and then eventually opium with China. And this was, there were lots of people who were there and uh, living after the first opium war, living in these treaty ports. And so I think there are lots of notices, I think, of amateur photographers bringing their cameras, but those are very difficult to sort of locate. Um, and so we don't actually have a lot of that material. Commercial photographers, I think, are a different sort of, it's much easier to locate because um, they were advertising themselves. It's something that was commercially sold. They were um, made for specific markets. And so I think that's a lot easier for us to find. Um, I don't know if it's the earliest American photographer, but I do think Charles Leander Weed was uh, very early. He was an American photographer from New York who went to out west, photographed in California, then made his way to Hawaii and China and Japan. And he was a commercial photographer. He was trained with Robert Vance and then I think with the blessings of Vance Gallery, he went to Hong Kong and China to look for business opportunities. And this is a time in which there's so much trade and flow of people that there is there are these small communities and these um, expatriate communities in the treaty ports. Um, and the demand is really for photography. You wanted photography to commemorate your time there and also try to explain to people back home what China was like. Charles Yander Reed was one of the earliest folks, um, and I think like many photographers at that time, um, was very itinerant, just moving around, um, even within China itself, from Hong Kong to Guangzhou to Shanghai and back. And then it was something in which he then settled there for a little bit and established its own studio. So we've been talking about Europeans and United States citizens, when do we see Chinese makers, I don't know if the way to put it is beginning to make photographs or, or, or maybe a better way to put the question is, when here do we see Chinese makers making photographs that American institutions are, are able to present? 
That's a good question. I think um, the show is principally about the introduction and adoption of photography in China. Um, and so we've covered uh, quite a bit about the introduction and how the sort of colonial history is intertwined with that. But I do think like it's important to think about how, well, first, photography was not static. It was always evolving, but that things could be easily adapted. I think the earliest Chinese photographers that we know of were working really quite soon after European and American photographers arrived. So Beato uh, Ite's photography, uh, Ite arrives in 1844, Second Opium War, and Beato's around 1860. I think it should be noted that a lot of um, the assistance of, of these early European and American photographers were Chinese assistants. There was somebody that always had to do the translation, like arranging transport, labor, um, helping with chemicals, sourcing eggs for albumum. It's like there is a lot of material sort of pressure in terms of, of, of resources. And those Chinese assistants were um, amongst the earliest ones to take over photography studios. Um, I think the most well-known for sure is Lai Fong. Um, Lai Fong was a photographer who was based in Hong Kong, um, and he was known as an entrepreneur, but an, also a competitor, like a, a, a competitor with John Thompson, um, with William Pryor Floyd. He had, he knew pictorially what was going to work. And so he was, his studio, I think, was established in the late 1860s, and it was the longest running studio in Hong Kong. His work definitely influenced many, many other studios, um, both in Hong Kong and the other places that he went in Shanghai and Fuzhou, and even the work of John Thompson. And so it's something where he uh, he also bought a lot of the negatives of European and American photographers who are passing through and leaving. So it's part of this story of, I think, um, integration and hybridization and also just um, adoption. By the end of the 19th century, it's really hard to sort of distant like, you know, some of Lifelong's own works from some of the other sort of prints and negatives that he had um, acquired over the years. You mentioned John Thompson um, can't talk about photography in China, at least in the United States, without talking about John Thompson. Um, he's well represented in your collection, and of course, in the Peabody Essex's exhibition history, um, including a pretty spectacular Sarah Kennel curated exhibition back in 2019 that uh, had its, had its you know, that was definitely pandemic affected, but I saw it before the pandemic and it was extraordinary. Anyway, this is all a long way of asking, um, who is John Thompson? And for you, is is he as important or, or great a maker as I think Americans think of him as being? John Thompson is a Scottish photographer. Um, he was a photographer who arrived in China, I think, in the 18, late 1860s, a contemporary of Lai Fong. And I think he is important because he truly understood the power of photography in print. And so he, and he also had a wonderful eye, like his, his, his works are really quite beautiful. I think the longevity of, of Thompson's work is really, can be attributed to, he knew how to put together a photography album. And he created these projects like Fuzhou and the River Min, which Sarah had a show that was based on. 
which was really geared towards it was kind of like a, a modern day photo book um, and that it was a sort of very contained project that tried to explore how to convey the, the place, the time, the feel of a certain place. And so for that project, I think it was around 1870, but it was a, a subscription only project that um, there were only 46 that were ever made. I think 10 have been located. Um, this was all for a subscription-based project that was geared towards expatriates living in Fuzhou. Um, and PEM has two of them. And so we were able to really dig into the making of that album. I think the other more well-known project that he's done is called Illustrations of China and Its People. And so this was a much more zoomed out view. Um, and this was um, really, I think, the first sort of photographically illustrated introduction to China that was published in a way that was for a much more mass market audience. There were, there were maybe it was something that was done in four volumes. It was something that was really marketed for armchair travelers and institutions in Europe and America. And so because of that, it really sort of it was something that um, dominated, I think, for a very long time, the sort of image and imagination of China in the West. It's complicated work. I want to close by asking if photography played a role in extending Western stereotypes about China and Chinese people. And if so, if there's one or two examples of that that is particularly clear for you. Sure. Yes. I think that something that we really tried to address, I think, in the work of John Thompson, for example, I think that it was complicated that 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 those projects are complicated because they are travelogues. But Thompson has at some points adopts this sort of authority figure, this this he tries to be somewhat of like an objective ethnographer. And I think that when you actually look at the work and you read it in conjunction with the text that he's writing, um, you realize that it's all based on stories. Um, it's something that he's very much sort of uh, inserting his own position, his own sort of biases and his own sort of, um, of, of ways of thinking that are inevitably influenced by, I think, a lot of the colonialism that is happening at this period. And so start to read it and you start to understand that this is something that is actually much more of through a, of a certain lens. And I think a, a particular example, I think, is um, we noticed that there are lots of images of crime and punishment. It ha It's something that is um, has a page or two, a, a, like an entry in John Thompson's illustrations of people, of China and his people. But it's also something that appears in work by other photographers in paintings and prints, and also in wooden sculptures and even playing cards. And so it's quite gruesome, um, and it's quite puzzling to us uh, why this was a specific motif. But then I think what we were learning as we sort of zoom out into thinking much more of the sort of the politics, the social, the politics and the history and the social aspects behind a lot of these photographs, we realized that it was very much connected to ideas of um, arguing for or against um, extraterritoriality in these treaty ports, meaning having a separate legal system for foreigners who are living at these treaty ports at this time. And so there was a desire to portray um, Chinese legal systems as cruel and corrupt and also 
a foil really for a lot of the Western ideas of rational enlightened justice. And the photographs that were made were trying to answer this, this need in the market. Um, it was used in some ways as um, evidence. Um, and if you actually look deeper at the photographs, you realize that there are, a lot of them are staged. And this is something that I think both Chinese photographers and Western photographers participated in. It was an answer to the market. That the, but they were things that were staged to sort of create this idea of difference and otherness. So a couple things about that that jump out at me. Um, the, the idea that Californians, for example, um, in the 1860s or 1870s could have thoughts about enlightened justice is um, funny, <laughs> given, given the history of California. Is um, William Saunders appears to have been a photographer who particularly took and trafficked in photographs of punishment that... Um, transited across media? Is there a good example of one of those? And is there a way of identifying what kinds of impacts those images had and have? That's a good question. I mean, he so he does have, um, William Saunders in particular, one of the things that he's mostly known for is uh, portfolios of occupations and daily life. And so those portfolios um, one of the things that we realized that they were very much being this, this idea of the call and response between different media, he, he was very much influenced by earlier 18th century prints of daily life and punishment in China that was created by Chinese artists. Um, and then so he sort of used those as a template for his fo photographs and his own series of photographs. But I think because of their nature being photographs, they were sort of, they were, their weight and I guess circulation was much, much heavier. Um, and this is something that I think he had a couple of series of staged executions, I think. These are things that we really unpack in the catalog, but we don't actually um, show in the exhibition. Those staged executions, I think, become something that really circulate a lot, just not in only in these photographs, but in newspapers like Illustrated London News. And, and they also appear in many, many different collections, uh, not just ours, but like it's also a trope that's found in many other collections throughout uh, the West. And so I don't I can't say like how we can measure exactly the impact of that. But it is something that I think you can find um, in all these different collections. And so there is, it just shows, I guess, the popularity of that particular motif, that it was something that uh, circulated so well. Stephanie Tung, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.